0: Hello and welcome to another Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. The topic of COVID is a paradise of hindsight, a world of self-appointed experts and rebadged pundits who can tell us what should have happened, and sometimes rewriting what did happen to suit their own agendas. But it's pretty short on people who could see what was going to happen and made any useful predictions of what governments and health agencies ought to do to deal with a growing world emergency. Our guest today is firmly in the latter category, and he's even more unusual because he's not a trained epidemiologist, clinician, or healthcare expert of any kind. Instead, Thomas Pueyo is a writer, marketing expert, and the head of an online learning business in Silicon Valley. Until early 2020, his posts on Medium had titles like What the Rise of Skywalker Can Teach About Storytelling and What I Learned Building a Horoscope That Blew Up on Facebook. But on March 10th, 2020, he put up an article entitled Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now. It made a strong, simple argument for rapid lockdowns at a time when Boris Johnson was still arguing that washing our hands was enough. The article would be viewed 40 million times in its first nine days and be translated into more than 40 languages. Fortune magazine would go on to call Pueo the overnight coronavirus expert, and he would expand his ideas into an equally influential essay, The Hammer and the Dance. His argument was that the following 18 months would involve a hammer, one short and extremely painful lockdown, and then a series of dances where countries unlocked and relocked, depending on local conditions, new waves and variants. If you acted quickly and firmly, Poirier argued, the strong measures need only last a few weeks, with small peaks in infections afterwards, all at comparatively little cost in lives and money. The alternative was tens of millions of infections, a collapsing healthcare system, and vastly more deaths. Guess which option Britain opted for. Thomas Player is here today to talk about the hammer and the dance more than a year on and what he thinks happens next. Thomas, thank you for joining us. How are you today and where are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm great and
1: I'm in California in the United States.
0: So, winding back the clock to last year and your essay, The Hammer and the Dance, and that whole period, when did you first hear of the new coronavirus and what was the point where you realised its severity?
1: It was in January, right? Everybody was uh, looking at China. Everybody was seeing the hospitals uh, being built overnight there. Uh, So in that regard, I was like everybody else. The only difference is that I just started looking into the the data and the numbers of COVID, uh, starting to get acquainted with the math behind it. I was lucky enough to have experienced internet virals, which mathematically are very similar to the growth of uh, in epidemiology. Within a matter of days, I was able to understand what an R of 2.7 meant for the rest of the world.
0: And almost 18 months on, when you look back at that essay, The Hammer and the Dance, and the others around it, how do you think they've stood up as pieces of work? Is there anything that you think you got wrong, or you misjudged, or you underestimated?
1: The Hammer and the Dance needs to be understood with information that it was available at the time, right? Uh, you are a politician. You need to make a decision right now. What do you do? In that regard, I definitely think it was the right decision to make because we didn't know what was happening. We, we didn't know how bad it was. We didn't know how much it spread. We didn't know how it spread. We didn't know what the measures were. And so in that situation, what you have to do is be cautious. And so you want to close everything to understand what's, what's happening and then take the right measures. However, there's one misconception from the hammer and the dance, which is once you apply the hammer, you can still use the hammer over and over again. And that's absolutely not the way it should be interpreted because the hammer, one of the key points is, okay, let's buy yourself time. Let's reduce the, the, the caseload um, so that your uh, healthcare system doesn't collapse. But more importantly, it's this factor of time and learning what you need to do to fight it. Once you know how to fight it, then you should dance. You should do things like test, trace, isolate. The cost of applying lockdowns over and over and over again is tremendous. And that's definitely not what people should have done. Countries should have learned to dance. Uh, so I still, for most of these countries, uh, of developed countries, I think the hammer and the dance is still valid. Now, not all the countries are in the same situation. Developing countries... For them, the hammer doesn't even work. That's not something that we knew in March, so it it was worth trying. But once you have a hammer like in Argentina or Peru or in India and you see it doesn't work, you have new data and you need to reconsider what your approach is.
0: The thing which really struck me uh, at the time of reading your essays was how logical they seemed. Um, They were drawing on information which was publicly available in most cases. Um, You seem to be plotting very sensible points realistically into the future rather than making, you know, wild predictions over the next five years. In terms of your own working process, how were you able to work through the subject like that in a way which seemed to elude most people in
1: politics at the time? You seem to have an unusual degree of clarity about it. I deal with uncertainty. That's my job. Uh, When you work in tech and you build products, that's what you do all day long. You need to figure out what it is that your customers want and you don't have perfect information about it. You need to make a guess on what you think is going to help them. A lot of it is uh, risk management. It is probabilistic. And you you start developing mental frameworks of what works and what doesn't. So there's this quote by uh, William Gibson. The future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And I think it is a super insightful. What does it mean? It means that the big trends that are going to determine the future already are here and they are unstoppable. And a lot of predicting the future is not about coming up with new trends, but rather understanding which trends already exist. And are uh, you, you can you can project into the future, and therefore you can impact the future by distributing the future. Right? In March of 2020, the future was Taiwan and South Korea. They had already figured it out. South Korea had already had five, six thousand cases, and they were already able to get it down to close to zero. The world is a very complex place. There's a lot of dynamics that are very, very hard for you to predict. So when there's a real world example of something that really, really works, you want to take that and you want to apply it everywhere. Now we know something in tech, we use this a lot because there's something very similar for startups. 95% of the startups are going to fail because creating something from scratch is so hard. A few of them succeed by creating something new. And as soon as uh, one of these companies succeeds, there's many other companies that are going to spring up and do the same thing. And the risk of doing that is dramatically lower.
0: Since the Trump and Brexit years, we've been in the grip in the West of a kind of expert phobia. You're not actually an epidemiologist yourself. Do you think that counterintuitively people were perhaps more receptive to your ideas because you weren't coming from inside, say, the health industry or a body like the World Health Organization? Did that kind of free agent status help you, do you think?
1: I don't think so. I think it's more that uh, most epidemiologists don't have a training in in communication, unfortunately. Some do, and they rightfully were listened to. The counterpoint to this is, absolutely, people should have been skeptical of me. And they were, and they should have, because I don't have credentials. That begs the question of trust. Who should we trust and why? Uh, If you go back 30 years, who do you trust? You trust the gatekeepers, the newspapers, the BBC, the government. They are the ones who have a voice and you listen to them. Now you're in a world where everybody can have a say and the result is you're going to have a lot of shit, but also in some cases, some people might have something that is worth contributing to the conversation. If you don't know where good information is going to come from, how do we know who to trust? Well, I think you want a lot of signals. But at the end of the day, a lot of it goes down to a track record. An epidemiologist, for example, has a track record. Even they, if they just have a PhD, the PhD is a track record. It's saying, look, i spent many years studying this topic. And not only that, but I have other people who also study this topic for many years that are vouching for me, because that's what the PhD is, right? in defending your thesis. And so I have a track record. That record is not the only one, though, that you should consider, right? If a person has judgment that over and over turns out to be right, then you should also pay attention to that person. And if a lot of other people look at a piece of content and think, yes, this makes sense, that's also a lot of uh, validation. And so to me, credentials are one source of trustworthiness, but in a world of internet, they shouldn't be the only one.
0: So do you think, has that removal of gatekeepers already completely changed our idea of what an expert is or should be? I mean, when Dominic Cummings, the uh, Prime Minister's advisor, was running the government here in the UK, he was very heavily in favour of technocracy over conventional elected MPs. Do you think that change has already taken place then?
1: I think in March 12th, I went on on British TV And I was talking with uh, John Edmonds, I think, at the time. And uh, he was one of the advisors of the SAGE group. At the time, they thought that lockdowns were impossible, that people wouldn't respect them. And so that's one of the key reasons why the government said, hey, let's just not uh, uh, apply the hammer and the dance. Let's just run this uh, virus. And so the reason why they thought this is apparently because they got some advice from behavioral psychologists telling them that this wouldn't uh, be possible, right? Being wrong in that is crucial because then tens of thousands of lives are at stake. This is an example where uh, technocrats failed, right? In Sweden, they followed uh, uh, the technocrat advice and uh, that has costed many, many lives for no uh, gain in the economy. Trusting technocrats As a rule of thumb in a situation like this, where there's a lot of information, where you're a politician, you have to make decisions, you you have no clue uh, what to do, and hundreds of people are telling you what to do. That's very, very hard. And uh, uh, as a rule of thumb, listening to technocrats is a good idea. But you can't just do that because, as we can see in the UK or Sweden, the outcome was poor. And so the question is, is, what is better than this? And for me, the metaphor that we should be using is encyclopedias versus Wikipedia, right? Encyclopedia is a 20th century technology uh, where you have a few people in the corner working very hard to come up with the right articles to publish. And then after years, they publish them and they're very proud of the quality and the quantity. And then comes the 21st century um, uh, equivalent, which is Wikipedia, where millions of people can contribute. A few thousand are super active but they have a process that means that there's many, many, many more articles. And on average, they're at least as good. Western democracies are a bit like this. You have a few people in the corner room making decisions for on everybody else. When in fact, if you could crowdsource all of the insights from all the population and all their reasoning, the outcome in policymaking would be substantially better substantially faster in substantially higher quantity. So the question is, what is the right tool to crowdsource all of this uh, data and thinking? Uh, But there's no question that uh, Western democracies, the way they work today, are a 20th century artifact that will not last until the end of the 21st century.
0: When you look at those systems in that way, our logistics chains in the West seem to hold up very well over the last year when they were placed under pressure. But as you say, our political systems seem to respond less well to this pressure in many ways. Do you think this is a problem caused by the kind of people that we've put into politics? Or is it a systemic problem of the way that the system encourages them to think and act?
1: Absolutely systemic. I think I, I don't believe in the fact that some people can have an oversized impact in the arrow of, of history. And in fact, here it's very obvious that it was not specific people because nearly all countries in the West were as poorly prepared to do this, right? It's not just the UK that failed. Ireland failed and, and, and Spain and France and, and Netherlands and Germany did a reasonable uh, job, but still failed. And so, you know, it's a system problem when everybody's failing. And it's interesting that you're, you're mentioning the logistics because that is a crowd sourced system. Like that's what capitalism does. And that's why it works better than central planning. In central planning, you have a few people in the corner making a decision for everybody, but they don't know what everybody knows. Whereas in capitalism, you don't, you don't, you don't know. And through pricing mechanisms, through demand and supply, you crowdsource all the information of what everybody wants, and that's how you have systems that work well. And so the, 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 we need the equivalent for the for the democratic process.
0: But do you think a a system based on a kind of pure version of that can work? Because is there not also the case where Populaces and humans just have a need for, you know, storytelling and narrative. And you know, while while a, a sort of pure data and logistics system might work better theoretically, will it not leave sort of certain voids that need filling by people?
1: One of the reasons why politics are so frustrating today is because they're, uh, it's because people feel feel powerless because the only voice that they have is a yes or no, left or right vote once every four years. And that is nonsense. If you have to wait for four years, the only thing that you can do in the meantime is read news, you get angry. That is not healthy. What if instead, if you saw something wrong, you could just go online, look at the specific problem that you're thinking about, look at the reasoning of why things are the way they are. And if you find a flaw, you can propose an alternative can propose a solution. You can bring more data that illustrates why this problem is misunderstood or why this solution should be changed. If people felt empowered like this, how much more productive would we be? And then not only that, but now suddenly the, the storytelling is not about Cummings uh, and, and Boris, but about the specific problem that you're talking about. I think a good example of all of this is uh, the fact that in, in uh, Switzerland, for example, all of these the stuff that we're talking about doesn't exist who's the president of switzerland do, do you know nobody knows because it doesn't exist there's uh there's a, a council of people and uh Uh, They can't be professional politicians and and things like that. And so, because they have a system that's different, that doesn't require this uh, this kind of prime minister uh, uh, role, suddenly you don't have the storytelling. And it doesn't mean that there's no politics. uh, It just means that everybody doesn't get focused on these crazy soap operas and instead focus on governing better.
0: Yeah, certainly. After our last few years, I'd be uh, I'd be very keen on politics becoming very very boring again in this country and uh, people just ticking along with it. You've talked recently on Twitter about the value of reading books as opposed to consuming what you termed fast news. And you said, based on the reasoning that the intensity of thought per minute of your time is much greater. Can you explain the thinking behind that a little?
1: The way social media uh, takes advantage of us is they, they know the buttons that work. They know how to get your engagement, your attention, how to get your click. They are engineered for extracting your time because your time is money through advertising. And so you, you need to be proactive in managing your attention. And so you need to ask, okay, wh- how is my attention best used? And this is a very novel problem. Uh, if you go back to to even just the 19th century, you had very little information at your fingertips. You had some books, uh, and you, then you had the people around you. But now suddenly you have a deluge of information from all over the world. And you have the best and you have the worst. And because people are trying to take advantage of you to attract your attention with stuff that's not forcefully good for you, you need to be proactive on deciding what is the best for me. And the best for you is going to be whatever is most thoughtful. Whatever a person that is intelligent has thought for the longest and has been able to condense the most. And that by definition is not going to be the stuff that, that that appears on the news or usually in your Facebook feed, because that's not their goal. Their goal is to grab your attention, not to to provide you with thoughtful insight. And so you need to have heuristics, rules of thumb are of where to get your insights from. Usually books are a good rule of thumb because people put a lot of thought in their books. They, there's many, many more hours of work per hour of your consumption whereas in a newspaper article for example that one uh, writer might have uh, published in uh, written in 20 minutes the level of thought is not going to be as intense
0: and when you do have to engage with online culture what are your your own tricks for avoiding getting sucked into these time wasting eye catching web bubbles do you have sort of practical steps do you have blocking
1: software or something or? as a human you have two options either you're not exposed to a, st- a stimulus or if you're exposed to the stimulus, you're able to not respond to it. The second one is very hard because it's a science. It's a science of engagement. So Facebook and company know exactly what's, what's compelling to you. Uh, the only way to do that is if you're extremely aware of what's happening in your brain. And the only way to do that is by developing this self-awareness. The best process for that is meditation, right? So if you meditate, if you think about these things, if you're very aware of who you are, what you are, how your brain works... You can catch yourself in the middle of being engaged uh, by something that you don't want to be engaged in and you can stop it. Now, that is hard. And I don't know you, but I I try to meditate as much as I can, but I get bored very, very fast and my brain goes everywhere all the time. I can't stop it. So what's a much better way to do it? It's just don't get exposed to the stimulus. If you don't go on Facebook you are not going to be attracted by the content on Facebook. If you don't go to the New York Times uh, page or the BBC page online, you are not going to fall in that black hole of content. So uh, that's the key. The key is don't even get exposed to the black holes, to scrolling, right? Uh, instead, be very thoughtful of what sites you go to. In my in my case, I, I don't visit Facebook. The only source for me... Uh, is Twitter and when there's big news i am going to learn about them anyways on twitter uh, and and this way i can I can follow just the people who i'm interested in and I cater to the highest levels of insight that i'm interested in
0: and just finally to go back to covid and the period we've just lived through traditionally periods of great upheaval and trial for countries can be big learning experiences do you think that governments in the
1: uk and the west have learned anything from what we've been through in the past year? Yes and no. There's a misaligned incentive here. If governments admit that, they're, that they were wrong, they will basically admit that they wasted thousands of lives and billions of the economy. And so they have a strong incentive to say, no, no, everything we did was the right thing. And that is obviously not conducive to learning. And so I think that's going to be the preponderant behavior. Nothing to see here. Everything we did was right. Uh, we're all superstars. All right. There might be some things here and there, but but, but not much. I do hope that there are uh, legislation changes, uh, especially around uh, what to do with test trace isolates under a, uh, a pandemic. After MERS, this is what South Korea did. After 2016, they had MERS. Then they they approved uh, a law that prepared them for the next pandemic, and they just lifted the dust from, from that uh, law in 2020. They applied it, and here they are. I hope we approve uh, something like that in Western governments, and I think it's still doable. But I think the biggest learning is actually not from the government, because the government behaves the way it does, uh, because that's the system, and that's the, how the system works. I think the biggest learning is for us. There's been a dramatic reduction in the sovereignty of nation-states because every nation-state's behavior has been compared to the behavior of other nation-states and we have seen in real time their decision-making and how poor it was. And so now people are going to be way more, I believe, way more reluctant to think that governments are doing everything uh, that they should be doing and I want to believe that this will push for better tools for decision-making.
0: That's an optimistic note to end on. Uh,
1: Thomas Poyo, thank you for joining me today. Thank you
0: for having me, it was great. Listeners, thank you for joining us too. Remember, there's a new bunker every Monday to Thursday, plus a weekend edition. And you can support us by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding network. Search Patreon Bunker Podcasts to find out about early episodes, our classy merchandise, and ticket discounts for our debut live show. The Bunker versus Oh God What Now is at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday the 10th of August. Tickets are available at leicestersquaretheatre.com Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofranevich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The bunker is a Podmasters production.